Heavenly Father, we have already prayed that your will would be done in, around, through us, here on this earth as it is in heaven. So we pray now as we look into your word that that would be true, that your will would be done in us. Help us to hear what your will is. Help us to obey and to apply it into our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. David Paulison once said, Normal life silently and steadily suppresses the fact that we will each give account to the one who actually defines reality. Let me say that again. Normal life silently and steadily suppresses the fact that we will each give account to the one who actually defines reality. That is so true. But have you forgotten? Has this slipped off your radar? Have you intentionally ignored it? I get it. It's not what we like to think about much. It can be a scary thing to ponder. And normal life does have a way of distracting us from these ultimate realities. We're so focused on our jobs and our homes and our families, our, our food, our entertainment, and so much more that we hardly bother to think, I will give an account to God one day. The Hebrews 9.27 tells us, it is appointed for people, men and women, to die once, and after that comes judgment. Judgment day is coming whether you like it or not. It is unavoidable. However, before you start tuning me out or turning this off because this sounds like a downer of a message, I don't think that the reality of Judgment Day should necessarily make us fearful. For some, it should. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But I think the truth of Judgment Day should make most of us, more than anything, Thankful. Thankful for justice. Thankful for mercy. And thankful for Jesus. Let's go ahead and turn together to Revelation 20. If you have a Bible, grab one, please. And it's in the last few pages of the Bible. As we've gone through Revelation, it seems I've had impeccable timing. First, I gave you a Valentine's Day sermon on the Mark of the Beast. Now I'm giving you a Mother's Day sermon on Judgment Day and Hell. So, today's sermon is a, or today's passage, I should say, is a short, sobering one as Revelation pulls back the curtain on reality again. Daryl Johnson claims that no text of Scripture poses the fundamental issues of our lives with greater seriousness and urgency than Revelation 20, 11 to 15. In recent passages, we've seen Jesus return to earth and reign as king over the earth. That involved conquering his enemies, the beast, the false prophet, the the devil himself, all of whom were thrown into the lake of fire, a symbolic way to describe hell. 
And in the context of all of that happening, today's message might as well tell us, do not follow Satan into hell. That's how I heard Pastor Garrett Kell put it. Do not, don't follow Satan to hell. Hell was not made or meant for you. It was intended for the devil and his angels. And hell does not need to be your end as it is for them. So do not follow them there. Satan wants to deceive you, to blind you, to distract you in order to take you down with him. Satan wants to keep your attention and affections on the temporal instead of on the eternal. But you know his end now. We saw it last week. So do not be deceived and hear God's word today. After seeing the devil get his due in verse 10, John sees something far more majestic in verse 11. He sees God. Look at it. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. Now, I believe that the point of this whole passage as a whole is to simply tell us that God will judge. And I tend to think that this judgment has already begun here. As soon as God appears, evil is beginning to be judged and cleansed. Things are starting to be set right because God's judgment is more than just the ultimate response to human sin. God's judgment is the ultimate and necessary response to evil's corruption everywhere. See, one day, God will judge the whole created order. One day, God will judge the whole old created order, which is deeply corrupted by evil. But before we see that happen, we see the Lord himself seated on his throne with John. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Now think back to how John already did his finite best to describe this for us. Way back in chapter 4, he said, and at once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And said, from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were seven burning torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was a sea of glass, as it were, like crystal. Like John is grasping at language and images to explain what he saw, because God's appearance really is humanly indescribable. And around God's throne, it says that there are beings of great power and majesty constantly crying out day and night, never ceasing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come, or worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. John then talks about thrones 38 more times in Revelation, including seven, no coincidence, 
throne room scenes. This is the seventh we've come to in chapter 20. And he doesn't attempt to paint the picture again. He just says, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The only thing John adds to the description is to say that the throne was great and white. It's, so it's amazing, immense, imposing, and it's pure, holy, incorruptible. But the point is, John saw God in his glory here, and nothing else needed to be mentioned. No rainbows or sea or jewels or other thrones or, or creatures or angels or saints or songs. God and his throne demand our full attention. In case you don't recognize how awesome and powerful his appearance is, the universe doesn't miss it. It says, from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. Have you ever cornered an animal somewhere, accidentally or not? Whether it's a, a pet like a dog or a cat or a wild animal like a rabbit or a squirrel, and they're trying to get away, but they're trapped somehow, and so they're frantically running or scampering about trying to find an escape. Now, it's really hard to, to picture the physical world doing this. But that's the picture here. Earth and sky from his presence fled away and no place was found for them. Earth and sky is shorthand for the heavens and the earth or the whole created realm. And they're trying to flee, obviously terrified of the presence of God, but they can't escape. There's nowhere for them to go. And scholars believe that phrase that there was no place was found is an allusion to destruction. So not only was there no escape route, but there was no place for continued existence. And that makes sense, considering that the earth and sky flee away here. And then in the very first verse of chapter 21, just a few verses down from this, a new heavens and a new earth appear. So the new creation passes away, or the new creation appears, sorry, because the first passes away. But why does the first pass away? Besides that the Bible repeatedly predicts this is going to happen. Well, earth and sky flee from God's presence and in essence are judged because they've been so polluted by evil and sin, so poisoned by the curse. They need to be remade. So the old order flees away, never to be seen again. Now let's remember that God's redemption plan from the very beginning is, is, is not only about us. It's about redeeming and restoring the whole of creation the way it was meant to be. And just as with us, that can't happen until evil is dealt with. Got but one question for you at this point. If you tend to neglect Judgment Day that's coming, if the very earth itself cannot escape God's judgment, how do you think you will? Despite judgment beginning at this cosmic macro level, it will still become very personal. 
And there are two clear sides to God's judgment of humanity, both alluded to in this passage coincidingly, but I'm going to address them separately, all right? So starting with the, the sad, negative, yet necessary side of judgment day. See, one day, God will judge the dead with eternal death. One day, God will judge the dead with eternal death. That may sound funny to you, but you'll see what I mean. Look at verse 12. It says, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. Now, how are the dead standing, seemingly alive? Because they're not dead anymore at this point. Remember earlier in chapter 20, when John said that the saints came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. So when John says great and small here, it means everyone. This, now the second resurrection has taken place. Everyone standing before God's throne. doesn't matter how great you are, were on earth or are on earth, you'll be standing before God. doesn't matter how, matter how unimportant you are. You won't be overlooked. All ages, stages, statuses, wealth, positions, before the throne of God, the playing field is perfectly level. As everyone stands before the throne, it says, books were opened. There in verse 12, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Now, this appears to be the same scene the prophet Daniel foresaw in Daniel 7, where he said, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. Scripture suggests that there are books of some kind recording everything that people do. Today, you may, it said with our technology picture, hidden cameras following you around all day and all night, recording everything that you say or do, even though recording your thoughts and your motives, everything. And then on Judgment Day, the recordings are played back in front of everyone. Well, I expect the only one whose opinion we'll care about then is God's. It's a scary thought, though, right? Talk about the ultimate revelation. <laughs> Everything will be opened up, laid bare. You'll be exposed. Fulfilling Jesus' words in Luke 12, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. And therefore, thank God that there's another book that will also be opened. If you continue on, Verse 12, the dead are standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. Now, save that thought, the book of life. We're going to come back to it. But hold on to it because 
It's like a, a precious beacon of hope in the midst of what comes next. See, the outcome of the book of life is really going to be described in length in chapters 21 and 22. But the focus in this short passage for today is on the outcome of the other books. The books that, rec that records all of this. It says that another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Wait, you say, we're judged based on what we do? Wouldn't that mean we're all doomed? Where do grace or faith come in? Because, goodness gracious, if, if I'm judged by this, by what I do, I've done plenty of evil things against God's will and God's law. I have lied and stolen and hated, lusted, raged, been lazy, gluttonous, greedy, and proud. I've had impure motives and evil thoughts and sinful speech countless times. Like if God brings all the evidence forward, I will be condemned as guilty in a heartbeat. I guess that's only fair. So, there's no hope for sinners like you and me. Wrong. Wrong. Yes, this is correct, that we will be judged based on our deeds or works. Consider what 2 Corinthians 5 says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Johnson explains this well. He says, what is this? Salvation by works? That after all, we are justified or condemned by our works and not by faith in Jesus Christ? No. It is just that John is telling us that deeds are more serious than we have thought. Deeds reveal values, deeds reveal character, deeds reveal our true allegiance, and deeds reveal what we really believe. On the final accounting, it will be according to our deeds because deeds are the most reliable indicators of where our faith lies. Our, our deeds are basically the evidence that will be brought before the court. And for believers, in some way, we will need to face up to the way that we lived, to give an account. And then, we believe, because of Christ's work on our behalf, we will be forgiven the bad and simultaneously rewarded for the good. So, in essence, we are judged by works, but still completely utterly saved by grace through faith. Now, if you ask many people in our world what will happen if they stand before God one day, if this scene comes to pass, they will tell you that they hope their good outweighs their bad. As if their life will be divided up onto scales. And if the good side is heavier than the bad, God's going to be okay with them. But as Jeremy Rene points out, courtrooms don't use scales, and neither will the final court. This says God's going to use record books, and that's going to show us all up. 
a court today trying someone for an act of treason against their country would not consider all the good behavior before or after the treason occurred. God will take everything into account. He'll see it all. But if the court is going to look at all the evidence, there will be plenty of it to condemn us all as guilty. One act of treason against God's throne is too many. So, again, thank the Lord that there is someone out there with a perfect record who offers to give us his righteousness. And that, that that same someone has taken our punishment so we can be pardoned. Jesus, who also defeated death and the grave, which was the first death blow for death. In Revelation, we see the final death blow. Continue on into um, verse 13 and 14. It says, And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. So again, they're judged by their deeds. Then, verse 14, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. None of us can escape death, but death cannot escape God. And here in Revelation 20, death, the the last enemy to be destroyed, is destroyed for good. These personifications of death and the grave or Hades are cast into hell for eternity. Every last one of God's enemies are finally defeated. God wins. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is incredibly good news. Eternally good news. However, things get super sobering here in a hurry. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Last verse. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The image of final judgment being fiery is a common one in the Bible. Daniel 7, Isaiah 66, Mark 9, Matthew 3, and Matthew 24 all describe it that way. We don't actually know how literal the image of fire is. It will be literal judgment and punishment, torment for sure, but literal fire and flames, a literal lake of fire, we simply don't know. But even if it's symbolic, that's no comfort at all. Right? It clearly represents something horrific. Hell's called the second death here in Revelation 20. And that's why I said that God will judge the dead with death. The spiritually dead, that is. Those who don't have life in Christ. Jeremy Rennie says to imagine a place where you are always dying but are never dead. Always in torment but never relieved. Always regretting but never forgiven. Always ruined but never restored. The descriptions of hell are likely figurative to some degree. The reality is probably even worse than the images suggest. Tim Keller talks about how how fire refers to the disintegration of separation from God. So that apart from the favor of God, we 
horrifically, endlessly fall apart. He explains it this way. Fire disintegrates. Even in this life, we can see the kind of soul disintegration that self-centeredness creates. We know how selfishness and self-absorption leads to piercing bitterness, nauseating envy, paralyzing anxiety, paranoid thoughts, and the mental denials and distortions that accompany them. Now ask the question, what if when we die, we don't end, but spiritually our life extends on into eternity? Hell, then, is the trajectory of a soul living a self-absorbed, self-centered life going on and on forever. Now, I want to take a few extra minutes to discuss hell with you right now because it is arguably the doctrine found most bothersome, even abhorrent today. People wonder how we can believe in a God who would send people to hell. We wonder how we can believe in a God who, in, who sends people to hell, in eternal torment. It, it seems too severe. There are many good resources, helpful resources out there. The best I think I've personally read on the topic is the book Skeletons in God's Closet by Joshua Ryan Butler. I commend it to you. I'll be using some of his framework, actually a lot of his framework, to to help us think through this today. What does hell mean? We tend to have a lot of assumptions, preconceived notions about hell, thinking of it as an eternal torture chamber, if you will, which lies in a dark underground, ruled by evil, where people beg to be let out, but it's been locked shut by a, a merciless God who abandons people. Almost every single aspect of that picture is wrong. It's a caricature, and a very inaccurate one at that. In fact, that caricature, as Butler says, is a strange reversal of the gospel where the people are the ones pursuing God, and God is the one unwilling to be found. Jesus apparently loves us enough to die for us, but hates us enough to lock us in a torture chamber, throw away the key, and plug his ears to our cries. I said, that is absolutely not the hell the Bible describes. And we do well to reject that picture of it. Question for you. How often do you think heaven and hell appear together as opposites in Scripture? Oh, they are opposite destinies. I think we can agree on that. But the Bible never holds the two up as co-equal counterparts, if you will. Not once. You know a phrase does appear over and over again? Heaven and earth. Heaven and earth. As Butler explains, heaven and earth are threaded throughout the biblical drama of creation, rebellion, and redemption. The story has three major movements. Heaven and earth are created by God. Heaven and earth are torn by sin. And heaven and earth are destined for reconciliation. God's purpose is not to get us out of earth and into heaven. It's to reconcile heaven and earth. Revelation envisions the consummation of world history with God's holy city coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. We'll see that next week. God's purpose is to redeem the earth, not to abandon it, 
His goal is to heal the rupture, not to let it win. God's promise is not to whisk us out of earth into heaven, but rather to usher in his heavenly kingdom to reign on earth with us forever. So then, where does hell come into the picture? Well, hell is an invader, an interloper, an intruder. If our broken, sinful world is going to be reconciled to God, then it must be delivered from the evils that have cursed and corrupted it. If creation is going to be redeemed, then sin, death, and hell have to be removed, banished. Butler continues, To long for the dawning of the light is to long for the casting out of darkness. To hope for the resurrection of life is to hope for the banishment of death. To dream for the healing of the body is to dream for the excising of the disease. God is on a mission to get the hell out of earth. Obviously, the turn of the phrase you get there. This idea really should turn the picture of, of a vindictive God just damning people on its head. Because with hell... God is doing what God must do for the world that he so loves. God is so grieved by sin and death and hell that they have afflicted his, and the way they've afflicted his perfect creation. Yet God has unbelievable compassion for humanity, even if we are broken by evil. And so God is deeply invested in reconciling us to him, so much so that Jesus died to do so. I'm going to put a diagram up to help show how this idea is different than our normal assumptions. So, we'll throw it up there. And on the left, I don't know where it shows up on the screen, so I'll just guess. But (laughs) you see the problematic way that we view heaven and hell. That we escape the earth, God abandons the earth, and we end up in one place or the other, heaven or hell. On the right side, we see the better way to see things, according to Scripture, according to the Gospel, that heaven and earth have been ripped apart by sin, and the world is ravaged by hell, if you will. God's goal is to reconcile heaven and earth and save the world from hell's evils. As Butler concludes, the time is coming when God's heavenly kingdom will come down to reign on earth forever, when Jesus will cast out the corrosive powers of sin, death, and hell that have tormented his world for so long. Do you get the difference? Like, the implications for how we understand hell are huge. Among other things, it means we unleash hell's destruction, not God. It means... Hell is not underground as much as it is outside the city or the kingdom. It means hell is not a a torture chamber. Hell is a power, Butler says, that God excludes to protect the flourishing of the new creation. Even though there is a punitive side of hell, it is more protection than it is punishment. 
I'll come back to this next week when hell is contrasted with the new heavens and the new earth. But if we are going to enjoy a reconciled, redeemed, restored, renewed creation with God, it means that there are things that simply can't be around any longer. Things that we actually long to see cast out of the world already. Hate, abuse, rape, genocide. We want sex trafficking, slavery, racism, murder, greed, and more to be gone forever. God wants to eradicate these evils from the earth as well. But we need to recognize that the roots of all these greater evils are in our own hearts. And God's word tells us that Jesus wants to dig out the root. In other words, we want to get rid of murder. Jesus wants us to get rid of insults or anger. We want to get rid of sexual abuse. Jesus wants us to get rid of lust. We want evil to be banished too. Jesus just takes sin much more seriously than we do. Jeremy Rennie adds, How could God inflict such a punishment on human beings? It seems the eternal punishment of hell vastly outweighs the crimes of a finite lifetime or even of a thousand human lifetimes. Therein lies the problem. We don't have any sense of the gravity of our crime. The punishment does fit the crime, but we don't believe it because we don't appreciate the heinousness of the crime. We don't see how infinitely worthy and wonderful and glorious God is, and so we don't comprehend or feel how unmeasurably vile and unspeakably criminal it is to reject God or God's ways. We will not understand the logic or the need for hell until we see the hold it already has on us. Like the good news is that though hell has its claws in all of us, God wants to set us free. He wants to heal our hearts, to forgive our sins, to get the hell out of us and our world. And that's where the final point comes in. Because while removing hell from earth is a necessity... It is still a tragedy for people that are judged. But, but, there is a clear way to escape the judgment of hell on Judgment Day. All because one day God will judge according to his book of life. One day God will judge according to his book of life. We mentioned the book of life in passing earlier. Look again in verse 12. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. So there are books containing our life stories, and then there's the book of life. If there were only the books, plural, we'd all be condemned to hell. But there's also a book of life, praise the Lord. If hell means eternal death, being recorded in the book of life means eternal life. And that is 
Way better news than we may imagine. As Gavin Ortland says, the final state of every creature is to possess God or to be separated from God. And you could say, if you are separated from God, you can't just be half miserable. And if you possess God, you can't just be half joyful and happy and blessed. Eternal life means full joy. Complete happiness, maximum blessing, going on and increasing forever. <laughs> like I said, back in verse 6 here, it said, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Like after hearing all about the second death today, that statement means much more, doesn't it? Like there is a way that the second death can have zero power over you. None. That you never need to fear hell. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Deeds were recorded in the other books. But it doesn't appear that's the case with the book of life. Names are recorded in it. And so, the obvious question is, how do we get our names into that book? How do we get our names recorded in the book of life? Well, earlier in Revelation, the book of life was also called the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. It's Jesus' book. And he chooses from the foundation of the world whose names will be written in his book. They'll never be blotted out. But again, how do we make sure our names are in it? Well, in John 6.40, same author as Revelation, but he's recording what Jesus said in his time on earth. And he said, Jesus said, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Or what about, what does John 3.16 say? Kids, say it with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. How we receive eternal life and have our names written in the book of life are one and the same. So how do we receive eternal life? Jesus says, by believing in him, by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, believing that he does so love us in the world, by believing he was the lamb who was slain, by believing he came to die and rise again and to save us forever, believing he came to rescue us from the condemnation to come. Like in the verse right after John 3.16, Jesus said, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Listen, Judgment Day that's coming is it's really good news. Comforting news even. For every time that we cry out today, for, when we pray for justice, for redemption, we wonder where God is in the midst of suffering and pain and injustice, but this tells us 
God's on his throne still. He still reigns. And he will judge. Therefore, evil will not get away with it forever. Everyone will answer to God. And like, if you've been hurt by sin and evil, be comforted. God's justice will prevail. However, we should also be cautioned because we're part of this sinful world that he'll judge. You know, the, the classic evangelistic question, if you were to die tonight, find yourself standing before God, and he asks you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? It's a good question. Like, what will you claim as your basis for entering his glory? Your accomplishments in life? The life that you've built here? Your church membership? Your Sunday school attendance chart? Like, look how many stickers I got. Your service? Generosity? Compassion? Your general goodness or, or relative goodness in life compared to others? Your avoidance of doing anything extra terrible or immoral. Your own remorse or penance over the sins you've done. I'm telling you today, none of that will count on Judgment Day. None of There is no hope in them. The only thing that will matter is whether your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. The playing field is level at God's throne. The ground is also level at the cross. It all rides on Jesus and our response to him. So what is your response to him? When we stand before the throne of God one day, Jesus gives us the perfect plea to make. Guilty as charged, yet pardoned by grace. Because Jesus took my place. Judgment day is coming, but you need, it need not be a day we fear because Jesus came first. Like if we belong to Jesus, it will be a day of rejoicing. It will be, it's even cause for rejoicing now. Jesus himself says elsewhere, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. If they're written there, rejoice, be thankful. Right? On this day, both death and life, death and life like we've never seen, will be doled out on Judgment Day. So what will you say? On what will you take your stand? What's your defense? What's your plea? My only hope, my only hope is that because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Guilty as charged, pardoned by grace. All because Jesus took my place. Please pray with me.
Heavenly Father, may we be ready. May we live today in light of that day. And Lord, if you are doing a work in someone's heart who's watching this or listening to this, we pray that you would bring them to conviction at the foot of the cross and help them receive your abundant mercy today. If you're listening in and you have to pray right now, surrendering your life to the Lord, do it. Father, we thank you for Jesus. You're so undeserving. And yet we're so thankful. Change our hearts, change our lives today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.